Since everyone has a gender journey, Gender Journeys is a podcast for everyone. That being said, we occasionally touch on mature themes and use strong language, so listener discretion is advised. Relevant content warnings can be found in each episode's description. And welcome back to Gender Journeys, the podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I am joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Elle. Hey, y'all. All right, so what are we talking about on the podcast this week? All right, y'all. We have some more hot takes Good. from Normal Life by Dean Spade. This is this is a series. We're gonna, <laughs> this is a series. This is officially now a three-part series, possibly longer. We'll see how the next episode we record goes, but uh, currently this is looking like it's a three-part series on Normal Life by Dean Spade. Yes. Um, I guess the True Scum episode wasn't like about Dean Spade, but you talked about Dean Spade during it, didn't you? I talk about Dean Spade all the time. Yes. You just finished the book, so. I did. But I, again, it's, I've been reading it for like six months. Anyway, but today's episode about Normal Life by Dean Spade <laughs> is going to be potentially more um, controversial on its face than the previous one. So I just ask you to bear with us. Okay. The topic today is why anti-discrimination laws and hate crime laws are not helpful and are actually detrimental to the queer community. Interesting. Yeah, it's a hot take, ain't it? That is a hot take. I feel as though I kind of balk at it at its face. And you should read Normal Life by Dean Spade. <laughs> I haven't read Normal Life by Dean Spade. That's true. That's a failing on my part. I've done a reasonable amount of reading on kind of like restorative justice and prison abolition stuff to kind of understand maybe the concept, the concept, like maybe why that would be true. But I don't have the deets. So. Yeah, I got the deets. All right. And I want to start off, and I'll, I'll bring it back to this point, but I want to start off by saying that a lot of these deets come directly from critical race theory. So, like, this is a, this is rooted deeply in an analysis of racism that was done by black scholar, scholars. So, know that. Okay. <laughs> know where this is coming from. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, to start us off here, tell us a little bit about, I guess... I'd like to know why you feel this way. What is the kind of basis for this argument that perhaps these laws do not help us so much as they hurt us? Yeah. Well, let's start with a quote from Normal Life by Dean Spade. It is on page 40. If you're, if you're reading along. If you're reading along, which at this point, I mean, if you're not, man, come on. You've had three <laughs> weeks. <laughs> um, we're also going backwards in the book. We started with the afterword. Now we're in chapter one. So anyway. Sorry, y'all. We're on chapter, uh, page 40. The persistence of wage gaps, illegal terminations, hostile work environments, hirings slash firing disparity, and bias-motivated violence for groups whose struggles have supposedly been addressed by anti-discrimination and hate crime laws invites caution when assuming the effectiveness of these measures. So let's start there. I mean, there's anti-discrimination and hate crime laws. For trans people, they're more up and coming, but there have been anti-discrimination and hate crime laws for black people, for women since forever. And 
Well, not since forever. Well, that's true. Very, okay, very, notably. Notably, very notably since like the 70s and 80s. Okay. That's a good point. But since the 70s and 80s and like has the pay gap dropped? I don't actually know, but it still exists. That I do know. The pay gap does still exist. I don't know if it's any more or less dramatic than it was previously. I don't either. But the hate crime laws and anti-discrimination laws undeniably didn't fix the 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 difference in earning potential. Right. It gave it I guess it theoretically could give somebody a recourse if they had access to the if they already had access to the resources to mm-hmm. utilize that recourse. As I was say, it's, it's interesting that you say that because yes, this also concentrates the disparity at the bottom. Another quote from Dean Spade on page 41 is that these laws also have such narrow scopes that they often do not include action taken by some of the most common discriminators against marginalized people, such as prison guards, welfare workers, workfare supervisors, immigration officers, child welfare workers, and others who have significant control over the lives of marginalized people in the United States. So Mm -hmm. does that mean that those people, like those- Are covered by it. So like- you can be discriminated against mm-hmm. getting hired for those positions? No, no, no. So, like, if a prison guard discriminates against you. The you... prison guard, you can't do anything against the prison guard. Exactly. Or welfare workers. That seems fraught. Mm, doesn't it just? And also immigration workers. Okay. But that seems like maybe we could patch that up by just making more anti-discrimination laws. Yeah, expanding them. That's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Dramatic page turn. <laughs> Dramatic page turn. Okay. But that brings us to... So that's like... That's not the reason that they suck. That is but the reason that you should be skeptical of them. Right. I mean, I think that that's fair. I think of that in... Uh, I personally am not the hugest fan of like capitalism. And right. one of the main arguments in favor of capitalism is that it fosters... Or that it helps to eliminate poverty. <laughs> and I would interrogate why there is still so much damn poverty if... Capitalism is such a good right. does such a good job at getting rid of it. So. so this is just like okay, so anti-discrimination laws and anti-hate crime laws are supposed to stop discrimination and hate crimes, and yet we still have so many of both. So like, I'm skeptical. Let's look deeper. Right. And as often when you are looking deeper, we're going to turn to people who have been doing this work for a lot longer. So now the next bit is like taken word from word from like critical race theory. This is mm-hmm. Dean Spade was just explaining critical race theory. Okay. And one of the main critiques that critical race theory puts forward is that discrimination law primarily conceptualizes the harm of racism through the perpetrator slash victim dyad imagining that the fundamental scene is that of a perpetrator who irrationally hates people on the basis of their race and fires or denies services to or beats or kills the victims based on that hatred so this is a conversation at least you and i have had like we have this theory in this country that racism looks like the KKK and like it it doesn't anymore. Right. It's like systemic racism is a thing that exists. Mm-hmm. I think that's a now pretty widespread concept. People at, understand. At least people talk about it. Yeah, like you don't have to be using the N-word and like beating up a person of color in order to be being racist and be being harmful. Right. And a system doesn't, and like a, a system or a policy doesn't have to say this is targeted against black people yes to be 
targeted against black people. Correct. So like it's setting up. So the point that Dean Spade is making or the point that Dean Spade is conveying from critical race theory is that discrimination laws set up this like perpetrator victim diet. So we're now we're zooming in on these instances where it's just like one person is harming one person based on one part of their identity. Right. Which is notably something that does still happen in employment. Yes, but it's damn near impossible to prove, which brings us back to the point of why these laws don't work, even in situations where it is like this highly individualized thing. Right. And it doesn't happen as often. I'm jumping around in, in my knowledge of normal life. But like, another thing that's talked about in this book a lot is like, a lot of the reason that trans people don't get jobs isn't because they walk into a job and are denied because they're trans. It's because they don't apply for them because they would have to show their ID and their ID doesn't match their face. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that sets them up for violence or even just like rudeness that they don't want to engage with, which is valid. So they don't even apply. So there's no discrimination. There's just like a systemic barrier. Right. Which we've talked previously on this podcast about gender in the workplace and Mm -hmm. like trying to kind of give a little ray of hope to folks who might be scared of that sort of discrimination by saying like, you know, you and I have both interacted with workplaces in in a relatively positive way where like, we have had good experiences by kind of flexing our other privileges. We, but we have so many other privileges. That's right. the thing is like systems like this concentrate the discrimination on poor, black, immigrant, disabled people. Right. Like the, the people who are kind of kept in that. In that lower class. In that lower class. And I think that it's interesting also that you bring that up because another critique of the anti-discrimination and hate crime laws is it has to be like the single identity thing. So you Mm -hmm. have to be able to prove that like if you weren't trans, you would be able to get it, which is very hard if you are, you'd be able to get the job, which is very hard if you are like a black, poor, disabled immigrant who is also trans. And it's like, there's a lot of barriers that are keeping you between this, you and this job, whereas you and I... We are white, able-bodied, relatively wealthy. So, like, it's much mm. easier for us to argue that it was our transness that was discriminated against. Right. Which, I'll call myself out then. Notably, when I got hired at one of my jobs, I didn't come out until after they'd given me an offer letter and I'd signed. Right, because you only had that one identity that was going to be blocking you. Right, right. As and soon as all, I came out. all of these neoliberal policies are aimed at that. They're aimed right. at helping you, who has one missing identity who is like one degree off of what the u.s wants right there was actually a really interesting court case that i'm i think dean spade talked about it in the beginning of this book but i could be misremembering from a different book that i read called captive genders which has to do with um gender expansive people interacting with the prison industrial conflicts but there was a court case Mm -hmm. about a lesbian couple who One of them had found out that they were being deported. There was like this wild thing, like their parents never told them or something. They were illegal or they were, uh, yeah, an illegal quote unquote immigrant, but they didn't know. And they had this like perfect little life and they were a lesbian couple, but one of them was Butch and he, and, and she was the one who like made all the money. I think she was like a lawyer and her wife like stayed at home with their two kids and they were like wealthy and in California. And they literally made the argument in a court (laughs) that they weren't the type of people who were supposed to be deported and they won. (laughs) So like, again, because they were only like one degree off, they couldn't be discriminated against because they were gay, but they were just one degree off. They were just like so close to the American dream. Right. And it's 
it is incredibly problematic to say that a butch femme lesbian relationship is a uh is a heteronormative relationship that is not that is not true but they they like gained privilege by like actively playing on that in the court that's what i'm saying right right because yeah you're right like obviously no but like they were able to allow (laughs) old crusty white judges to like project that heteronormativity onto them and it saved them you know but that's not something that is accessible to everyone no certainly not right so like these anti-discrimination and hate crime laws are so you have to be you have to be only one degree off right so actually then i I do have another question Mm -hmm. then because i feel like right now we're talking a lot about anti-discrimination laws like i think of like i said my job application process i knew that if i came out after i'd already been offered the job and then i got denied the job then i would have a recourse because it'd be very clear that like well they were fine with me until i came out as trans and then you know right things like that and that's all anti-discrimination stuff. I think that there are probably similar stories that you and I could tell with like housing discrimination or, mm-hmm. you know, probably school yeah. discrimination Yeah, we actually things. just recently didn't really disclose your transness until after we signed a lease. Right, right. So that's a, still a thing we're continuing to do. Right. But that that all feels like anti-discrimination laws. And so I now, the uninformed party of this discussion. <laughs> I've read see... one book, so informed. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how those are not necessarily helpful, mm-hmm. but... How are the hate crime legislations not helpful? Okay, so this might actually be one of the few episodes on gender journeys that is actually helpful to listen to the previous one before you listen to this one. So like maybe pause, (laughs) go listen to that one if you haven't. They are a little bit building on one another. Think about it. We were just saying this, my love. What does hate crime expand? It expands the ability to punish people using the prison industrial complex. It, yep, so it expands prison sentences. Hate crime, the whole point of hate crime laws is that they have harsher punishments. It's all, that's the only thing that's different about them. Right. So harsher punishments. Mm-hmm. Um, they, in some cases, can expand surveillance if you're looking for hate crime laws. But mostly they expand the um, disciplinary action of the PIC. Of the okay. prison industri- industrial complex. So they are working... Which we don't agree with. <laughs> right. So they're working to basically expand a system that already harms people. Right. And who does the PIC harm? Primarily poor people, mm-hmm. people of color, mm-hmm. marginalized communities. And? And queer people. Queer people. Yes. So like the whole concept is backwards, right? Like we have, we need to expand the PIC in order to protect queer people. But the PIC we know hurts queer people. So then it begs the question, what queer people are we protecting and which queer people are we hurting? Right. Because there's a difference and it is a little bit black and white. (laughs) Right. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but I want to come back to the perpetrator victim dyad because it's important. That's a fair point. And all of these, all of, all of this discussion props up the perpetrator victim dyad, and it does three really bad things. So I'm going to tell you those three things first off. Okay. It individualizes racism. Again, this is from critical race theory. So it individualizes racism, but it also individualizes transphobia, Queer. queerphobia, all of it. It individualizes all of it. It makes it like a person by person issue, and that makes people forget that systems exist. Right. To which point, number two, it obscures the historic context of racism okay so it obscures like the generations of harm that racism has already done Mm -hmm. and acts like if this black person today isn't being discriminated against in their job they're gonna be grand even though like generational wealth is a thing Mm -hmm. (laughs) or like if we're 
looking at it through the queer lens, obscures things like the generational impact of the AIDS epidemic. Exactly. Or the garment laws or the anti-sodomy laws yeah i was about to say or a generational impact of like religious trauma on Mm -hmm. on queer people generational impact of like not having anybody who looks like you in the queer community right like for so long people are so isolated because of queer phobia so it obscures that and then number three it creates the false impression that the previously excluded or marginalized group is now equal and that fairness has been imposed and the legitimacy of distribution of life chances is restored. And this is how we get to the whole, well, there's no racism. Black people must just be lazy. That's why they're poor. That comes from it being an individualized thing. Because like, if you could look at the full system, that's stupid that's right. beyond idiotic but if you think it's just individual people who now have equal chances at not being discriminated against then you are like well must be something individual that's causing this problem so you also right. individualize the blame okay interesting yeah. interesting yeah and i think that that actually also to once again jump to the the hate crime yeah. thing because i think that the anti-discrimination laws i I actually don't think it takes a lot of, like, mental gymnastics to really get there once you also are aware of... I mean, like, you're reading from the critical race theory sort of, like, guidebook. Like, yeah, this, this is, is... this. I feel like if you could create, like, a 10-pager of critical race theory, this would definitely be in it. <laughs> yeah, like, this is part of recognizing that there are systems in place, which... And this also, just to be very clear, gives rise to colorblindness. I'm not going to explain how, because that's not what we're talking about here today, but just like, trust me or go read Normal Life. It also, colorblindness comes from this. Right. And like, (laughs) once you recognize that there is a systemic problem in the Mm -hmm. United States or in a lot of the world, then it doesn't take a lot of like mental gymnastics to also realize like, oh yeah, so then like, the anti-discrimination laws probably don't help are not that helpful but i think i think the hate crime is also really interesting because i know that like when it comes to trying to reform the systems as they exist and like implement ways to keep marginalized people queer people people of color women right disabled people could keep those folks more safe Mm -hmm. there are like calls to expand anti-hate crime laws yep and we just recently had one with the uh Butt-ass crazy man who went and killed eight South uh, Asian women. That was one I was going to bring up. Yep. That Mm -hmm. was the exact one I was going to bring up. Yep. Because I remember so distinctly people being like, this was a hate crime. We need to persecute it as a hate crime. And he didn't conceptualize as a hate crime. But, like, there was hate involved in the targeting of it. And, like, the hate crime discussion doesn't really allow for that knew it's it's he was or he wasn't and which group was he doing a hate crime against was it women or was it asian Asian people or was it asian women like was it sex workers and it doesn't allow you to kind of interrogate the various ways that harm can intersect and allow somebody to recognize that they have done something wrong without just like adding prison sentences onto them josie recently read a book called healing resistance and that's where a lot of this argument is coming from just so that's, that's just, just true. naming that. Healing Resistance Kazuhaga. I also highly recommend it. Yeah. But so I think something that's really interesting in the point you just raised is actually a pro to hate crime. So let's just like, okay, let's bring that up. So part of the reason that hate crimes are called for, and especially part of the reason that hate crime is called for in that particular instance, is because in theory, hate crimes are worse and deserve a worse prison sentence. Mm-hmm. 
in if theory. You, if you agree with prisons, <laughs> I guess. Agree, maybe. Yes, maybe. So they, but the reason that they deserve a worse prison sentence is because they are worse because they affect people other than the victims. That's the idea. Okay. Is, so the idea is that if I... If, well, uh, let's not make me a hate crime person. Let's use this dude who we already have as a great example. He killed eight, I think he killed seven Asian women and one bystander. Customer. Yeah, customer yeah. or something. And he did so in a moment of incredible and completely unrecognized violence against Asian Americans. Right, right. During, the COVID during the COVID pandemic. And- people were... I mean, during a period where our president was saying things like Kung Flu. Right. Where people were like genuinely worried that you could get coronavirus from Chinese takeout. Guys. <laughs> but like, I mean, that those were things that were really being peddled by like actual authority figures in our country. And Asian Americans were being attacked on the streets. Right. So when a man went out and killed seven Asian Americans... Uh, regardless of what he said it was about, which was about them being women. Or specifically sex workers, I think, was one of his big... Yeah, temptations for him. Anyway, not the point, though. But regardless of his whatever, it is terrifying for people, Asian Americans, who had already been at increased risk in this country in that moment to see seven people who look like them murdered like that. Right. And so it carried with it more terror, like hate crimes and like terrorism. Like it's like, it's like meant to invoke fear. It's meant to make people right. more scared. Right. And bringing it back to trans people, right? Like if you know of one story of a trans woman who went in to get a job and showed her ID that had a little M on it and then got murdered, mm-hmm. you are much less likely to go apply for a job and show your ID that has a little M on it. Right. You only need to hear about it once. Right. And also kind of, less dramatic but more now swinging back towards the anti-discrimination laws i suppose because these are really intertwined they are very intertwined like they're so intertwined but then also if you hear that like yeah you know everybody knows that the local bank doesn't hire queer people so don't bother applying right and then they don't even have to discriminate they don't even have to discriminate and again that brings it back to like that systemic thing Mm -hmm. or you know that like there are there are places what was it recently there was um a i don't remember what it was it was during it was during pride month it was a rainbow capitalism thing somebody was saying that a particular chain store like chain restaurant uh always only printed dead names on the schedule like the there was no way to put well there's paypal that won't let you change their name your name for no fucking reason but it it wasn't that it was specifically about employee schedules were not using their real names it was using their dead names and somebody called them out on one of their rainbow capitalism pride month posts and it got changed because but, people called them out on it. But the, okay, we're straying away from hate law, hate crimes and discrimination. Right. Laws. Well, sorry, I was getting to a point on that. Was that like, if you know that a place will actively dead name you or will actively like try to erase or obscure your queer identity, you might not work there and they don't have to discriminate then. They're, yeah, but that's still straying away. I guess that's still straying away. <laughs> correct, yeah. So then I guess what what is an alternative to these laws? Because these things exist. People do discriminate in overt or in non-overt ways, more often non-overt ways, especially these days. But if these laws didn't exist, what are some alternatives that we might be able to utilize in our society? Abolishing the PIC. Yeah, that would do it, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. That would help a lot. Yeah, that would do it. And the police. Yeah, the PIC, I think we've said it in this episode, but that is the prison industrial complex. Yeah. I mean, so like, I don't have solutions like that. Dean Spade doesn't give them to me, and I certainly, with my one book, don't know enough yet. That's fair. I think that 
the argument that I'm making right now is not about alternatives. It's about mm-hmm. being it's about being skeptical of this because right. I think it can be very difficult to remember that you're skeptical of these things when they sound very good. I think that a lot of people, a lot of marginalized communities in general over mm-hmm. the last four years of the fucking Trump administration right. have had a very conflicted experience of being like, I don't agree with the military and certainly don't want to fucking serve in it. But when Trump says that trans people can't serve the military, I'm like, fuck you, let me serve. Right. Or like people, I know that I've heard sentiments of when um, Derek Chauvin was arrested for, how many years did he go to jail? I don't 22? remember the number of years. Yeah, something like that. Not that fucking long. People were like, he should be in jail for his lifetime. I don't agree with prison, but I think he should be in prison forever. Like those are things like you have conflicting it's it's great and all to be like, I don't agree with discrimination laws or hate crime laws until something like dramatic happens in the news mm-hmm. and you're like, that person needs to be charged with every hate crime law, throw the book at them, lock them away for their life, put them in the shoe. Like, I don't care. And I think also notably, it's really easy to be skeptical of these laws up until they start benefiting you. Uh-huh. And note, again, we, yep. To mm-hmm. the point of, my searching for a job right after college to the point of how scared we were moving to a part of the United States that doesn't really have any anti-discrimination laws for trans people. Yeah, there aren't any discrimination laws in, in Oklahoma for gender. Yeah, so like that's something where on the one hand... And I think that's another benefit of them is there is still... There is an optical benefit of the state cares about me. Right. And I don't mean like literally the state. I just mean like there's there's an optical benefit to being like the government cares about me. I'm written into the law as being worthy of protection. Right. It's just that it's not that that benefit is not worth the cost that it comes at because this is propping up systems. Again, mm-hmm. the perpetrator victim dyad, like that is a system under which all of the isms operate. Right. <laughs> Right. And so, like, it, it can be really hard. Because, yeah, like, Josie and I, when we figured out that there weren't discrimination laws in Oklahoma, we were like, oh, my God, can we move to Oklahoma? Like, we could get kicked out of our apartment. Oh, my God. What? <laughs> like, people get kicked out of their apartment in Milwaukee all the time. Josie and I don't get kicked out of our apartment because, again, we would never have issues paying rent on time because we have right. generational wealth. Like, it's just, it's used to make people who do have privilege scared and so that we buy into these into these systems even though they do not serve our actual ideals i was gonna say they Mm. don't serve us but they specifically do serve us well they specifically serve people like you and i right but they don't serve our actual ideals they don't serve our ideals and they don't serve our our full community and part of the reason for that is like you said they do prop up these outdated or actively harmful systems and they're not even outdated that's the thing like they're not outdated they are Fucking modern. They are up to date. They are up to date. They are more up to date than our... Computers. (laughs) True. But more up to date than our protest tactics, you know? like They are so up to date. And like, again, just to bring up an example I used in the last episode, like the prisons co-opting, like trying to protect trans people by opening more prisons. Like, I mean, come on. That's so insidious. Right. Um, Right. And that's aimed at people like you and I because it's so... And this can probably be its whole episode. It's a whole episode. But there's this concept of like a single issue solution. (laughs) So if your solution to a problem only helps people who only have one issue, one quote unquote issue, one degree off of the American standard, then your solution is not very helpful. Right. 
So like, right. so like that's to the point of like anti-discrimination, the hate laws, like they only help if you can prove that you are attacked because of your one identity. Right. Which is increasingly difficult. Which is increasingly difficult. And it doesn't work if you're already involved in various like um, control systems like welfare or the prison industrial complex or immigration. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't work for you if you're already involved with those. Right. And like, we can't leave half of our community behind and by that i mean like half of our trans community right right like we can't just be like mm, well anti-discrimination laws protect me a relatively wealthy white trans person so like they work for me when they're just like ditching every every trans person who doesn't fit that category right that's not gonna work that's not gonna get us very far yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah so do you want to give a quick summary here as to this particular hot take yeah okay so anti discrimination laws and hate crime laws do have some benefits we named Mm -hmm. one or two of them like i'm not trying to say they're absolutely useless they have some benefits Mm -hmm. but those benefits do not outweigh the fact that they prop up this victim perpetrator dyad this like individualization of bigotry that allows for a whole system of oppression to take place and if you feel like anti-discrimination laws and hate law hate crime laws would protect you personally you should examine what privileges allow that to be true because right. the most marginalized people are not protected by them right okay that makes I think sense. that's pretty much the hot take also again go read normal <laughs> and Overall, if you're doing that interrogation of how those laws might not protect other people or how they might not do quite what they're intended to do, if we're talking about hate crime laws, they might not actually prevent crime quite the same way. Yeah, also just like one take that I didn't manage to actually say about hate crime laws at any point, but hate crime laws don't prevent crime. Yeah. Nobody looks up the fucking minimum sentencing for a crime before they do it. What? Yeah. It only extends punishments for people who have yeah. already committed hate crimes. And notably, based on the mass shooter that we uh, touched on previously, you have to prove that there was specific hate Which is involved damn near in it. Impossible. And it's extreme. It, that's so difficult if, yeah. like, the person... I mean, actually, even if the person used a racial slur during the attack, right. frankly. Yeah. So, like... Hate crime laws especially, you should be super... They they're, just... They they're, don't... They, they're one of those things. They kind of work on an optics level, the way that you mentioned. Yep. Like, the the value in them is that we say as a society, this is worse than just a murder. This is right. a hate-based murder. And that is worse. That's bad. And, like... But the way that we the way that we punish crimes is unacceptable and not in line with our values. So, we shouldn't do it. Yeah. Absolutely. We should interrogate the systems that yeah. hold up these oppressive policies. Yeah. Yeah. I will also link another book that is about restorative justice and ways to deal with harm outside of the prison industrial complex. Because I know I specifically said that, like, that's not what we're talking about in this episode. And if you're interested in, like, well, how the fuck else would we deal with it? I have a resource there for you. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll link something in the description there. Yeah. All right. I think that's where we're going to wrap it up this week for Gender Journeys, the podcast where we talk about just what the heck gender actually is in context. As always, I am one of your hosts, Josie, and I'm joined by your other host, my lovely partner, Al. Bye, y'all. And until next time, just keep thinking about it. Music for Gender Journeys composed by Sonia Berdash. If you want to stay up to date with Gender Journeys episodes or just want to say hi, you can follow us on Twitter at gender underscore journeys or on Tumblr at genderjourneys.tumblr.com. You can also find us online at josiewrites.com slash gender journeys. We hope to hear from you soon.